Friends, let me invite you to turn uh, to the 40th chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 40. As we come this morning, we continue our series in the life of Joseph. We'll read the entirety of this chapter. It should be a famous, familiar text to many of us, but let me uh, nonetheless invite you to follow along and we'll see maybe what's uh, unfamiliar here. We begin in verse 1, we'll read through verse 23. Remind you, this is the word of Moses. Yes, it's a human word. It's also the word of God. Both together beautifully. Beautiful in literature, beautiful in grace, powerful. Let's receive it, therefore, in faith. Let's seek to store it up in our hearts in love. That we might do as this word commands. We read this. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer, the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we've had dreams. There's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretation belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it's well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. and the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. He placed the cup in Pharaoh's head, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet, <clears throat> the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon the hearing, the preaching, the doing, the loving 
the believing of it. Father, we come to you. We've offered ourselves to you, our paltry gifts to you. And yet, Lord, we ask that you would give us more. Give us more of your grace. Give us more of your word. By your spirit, open up the eyes of our hearts to see what is clear here, what is sufficient for our life and for our godly living. We pray you would remember us in our time of need. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. What do you think God wants with you? What do you think God wants with your life? What do you think you're here for? You know, if you never ask that question, if you never think about that question, you never answered that question for yourself, you will be in a sore situation. You'll be frustrated. You think you're living for pleasure? Think you're living for the good life? Think you're living, you know, and, and going to church is good enough for you because that's what daddy did? And you find out it's not, not only the way it works. You'll be disappointed. You'll be, if you don't answer the question, you'll realize the life you live as a person so often isn't the life you want to live. The life you live so often isn't the life you want to live. And many of us grew up knowing our grandparents. I, I knew uh, my maternal grandparents the best. Um, many of us grew up knowing our grandparents. Some of y'all have reached the ripe old age where you are now grandparents. You know, kind of the, the joy of being grandparents. You know, the joy of being grandparents is you can send the grandkids home. I mean, send them home. You get all of the blessings, all the benefits, all the privileges. You get to spoil them rotten. And then guess what? They're in a sugar high. Time to go back to mom and dad. They can deal with them. That's the joy of the grandparents. You get the joy of the kids and none of the responsibilities. And the sad thing is, of course, that we tend to hold God to that standard. C.S. Lewis put it this way. When we say God's good, today, nowadays, we mean really exclusively his loving kindness. We want people to just be happy. Lewis says, what would make us most satisfied is for everybody just to have had a good day. We don't want a father in heaven. We want a grandfather in heaven. We want a person who just likes the young people, the young ones, to enjoy themselves. Now, joy is certainly part and parcel of what God has for you. It's part of your purpose is to have joy. But what is that joy? Is that joy a good time? Is that joy simply whatever desire you have, do it, satisfy it. Whatever you feel like that day, embrace it. Well, we have a bit of an answer to that question of what is God's purpose in giving joy in this text. We come to Joseph. You've been with Joseph. We've been with him. We come back to him. I didn't read the last part of chapter 39, but we'll be there a little bit. Joseph's been in a bit of a roller coaster. He's been in an up and down kind of spiral. One of my regrets as a child is that um, I did not get to go to the theme park Astro World in the last days of its, its, its existence. I got to go there a couple of times. They had great roller coasters. I enjoyed roller coasters, and the ones over here in Six Flags are pretty good. The Batman ride's fun. Um, but I regret I didn't get to go to the Astro World the, the last time it was open. It was a very sad, sad day when it closed. But Joseph's on a kind of a roller coaster of sorts. He's been not to Astro World, but to maybe a rough and tumble. Uh, roller coaster. Remember, he started up. He began on a high. He began on the top. He was the favorite child of his son, of, of, of his father, Joseph. He had the royal coat, the rich coat of many colors. And then he crashed. He went down into the envy, the hatred of his brothers. He went down. They put him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. And then he rose again. 
We saw it the last chapter, 39. He rose again to become the chief servant in charge of uh, Potiphar's house. Potiphar, the second in command of Egypt, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Joseph was his main man at home. He ran the ship. And now back down to earth, you recall, Potiphar's wife, a very devious, clever gal, gets him in trouble. Even though he was innocent, even though he didn't succumb to temptation, any of the temptations, he now is in prison. He's in a government prison. In fact, we'll come to find he's actually in a prison right next to Potiphar's house. And yet one day, in fact, probably next week, we'll see Joseph move back up for good, up the roller coaster. And yet in this chapter, you have that awful experience. I've had it happen twice in my life on roller coasters where you stop in the middle. You're halfway up and you just stop in the middle. It's very scary because I don't know what's going to happen. It's a little bit nerve wracking. And Joseph, maybe you've had that happen in an elevator. It's, it's also not fun. It's actually worse almost when it happens to you in an elevator that gets stuck between floors. You don't know what's going to happen. Well, Joseph is caught in an elevator. He's caught in a roller coaster. It stopped. And it seems like his life is kind of meaningless, purposeless. He's in prison. And yet, we will see today, really, that things are not out of control. Things are not out of control. In fact, this whole chapter, this whole story is a pattern. It's part of a pattern that's been emerging. This is the second time Joseph has been in prison. This is the second time there are two dreams, you recall. Maybe. If you don't, I'll tell you right now. Back in chapter 37, Joseph had two dreams. And now again, there are two dreams that he interprets. And in fact, there's a weird parallel with the last chapter. Remember what happened with Potiphar? Joseph was accused of an offense he had not committed against his superior, his master's wife. He's put into prison. Now two men are accused of offenses against their boss, their master, Pharaoh. They're put into prison. So the question is, in all of this randomness, all this pattern, is there really a pattern from the Lord? Is God working this pattern? Where is God? I think the best way to look at this chapter is to look at verse 14 and use it as a lens to look at the whole. What's verse 14? This great statement. Joseph says to the cupbearer, remember me when it's good with you, when it's well with you. Remember me. Get me out of this house. Mention me to Pharaoh. Remember me. When all goes well with you, when you come to Pharaoh's court, remember me. We're going to see it in four ways. Memory. Forgetfulness. We're going to see it in four ways. First, you see, you have your outline in the, in the liturgy if you want to follow. God's faithfulness. God is faithful. This note is seen really in the last chapter, the last verses of the last chapter. Joseph is in prison. He's in prison, and what happens? God is faithful to him. God shows him kindness. He's in jail again, but God is with him. And that tells us that everything that happens in the life of Joseph is in the bubble of God. Joseph is, if you will, a bubble boy. The bubble boy, the child who was so sick he had to be in the bubble in his own home. I think there's a movie about it. But Joseph is a bubble boy. He's in the bubble of God's providence and God's care. In fact, to cut to the chase, you're a bubble girl. You're a bubble boy. You're in the bubble of God's providence. And yet, it looks originally like he's not. 
Joseph is chained in prison, in a dungeon. He's an innocent man. He's been faithful. He's done what, what we want all our, all our boys to do. He, he's endured the temptation of lust. He's not given in. He's been faithful. And what does it get him? It gets him in prison, in jail, a whole pack of trouble, a dark, stinky prison. Where's God in all this? I mean, isn't this what you feel like when you're in your own little prisons? God seems so far off and things seem so dark and wrong. Where everything is not just going wrong, but your whole life seems to just be wrong. You know what I mean? It just seems to be wrong. Your best efforts, your best intentions, your, your best challenges, you're in the pit, you're in the prison. And it feels like God's let you down. I mean, you were, you were a good boy, you were a good girl, you were a, a good father, you were a good wife. You did all the right things that you knew that Christian culture or you're reading the Bible told you you should do. And where's it got you? In prison. It feels like God hides his face. And with the psalmist, you want to cry out, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? We're like Joseph in prison. But this text tells us that God is with him and therefore he is with us. Let me show a couple of ways. First, he's placed... In this royal prison, verse 3 of our text says, he's not just placed in the royal prison, but he's placed in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard. Who's the captain of the guard? Who's the? It's Potiphar. He's placed in prison right next to his master. His master's home. It, as a side note, I'm going to speculate here for a second. And I think it's likely that Potiphar didn't actually believe his wife. If he had believed his wife, Joseph wouldn't be in prison. He'd be dead. He'd be killed. But Potiphar didn't want to let his wife down in front of everyone. That's speculation. But the point simply is that God's been showing favor to Joseph. He's given favor, moreover, verse 21 of the last chapter, in the sight of the keeper, the warden. The prison warden looks at Joseph and says, hey, this is a good God. This is a competent God. He's put in charge of everybody else in the prison. Like in Potiphar's house, now in Potiphar's prison, not only does he have integrity, but he's the mafia don. He's the godfather. He's running the prison. And then what happens? God shows more favor. God shows more favor. Verse 4. The captain of the guard, that's Potiphar, appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. Who's the them? These two officials. There are two officials of Pharaoh. The chief cupbearer and the chief baker. That may not seem like much to you. But Pharaoh, like any politician today, any leader today, is nervous. He's nervous about plots. Revolution, fascination attempts. He's nervous. He's scared. And in those days, especially, poison was a great way to get rid of an unpopular leader. A great way to get rid of a leader. The chief cupbearer is in charge of Pharaoh's drinks. The chief baker is in charge of his food. You want to poison Pharaoh, poison his food, poison his drinks. Two most trusted officials in the land. And of course, they're dangerous. I mean, on the one hand, you have high prestige. On the other hand, it's a very dangerous position to be in because you have to taste the wine before you give it to Pharaoh. And if it's poisonous, it's going to kill you first. Just, just FYI. It's very dangerous, but very, very honorable. In fact, Nehemiah, later on in the Bible, holds the same position. Chief cupbearer. And something happens, however, and, and these two guys, are, they're dismissed. I don't, we don't know what it is. Maybe they gave Pharaoh a, a bad, you know, a bad uh, meal that morning. 
We have no idea. Maybe it was just a whim. Maybe Pharaoh didn't like the shape of the you know, chicken on his plate, and he said, oh, it must be the baker's fault. This bread isn't cut in triangles. I prefer squares for my sandwiches. And so he dismisses, you know, who knows? It could have been something serious. It could have been something minor. We have no idea. But they're assigned to Joseph. They're sent to be with Joseph. In God's providence, this slave, this innocent man, this guy who's in prison, ends up in daily contact with the two most important civil servants. It'd be, it'd be like you suddenly finding that, that you're, you're hosting in your home the Secretary of State. The vice president. Some high official in, in the American government. Is this not God? Think of the influence that Joseph had in these guys. Is not God here with Joseph? And then God causes each of these men, verse 5, to have a dream. They both have dreams. And they're so disturbed by these dreams, the next morning, Joseph says, y'all don't look good. Y'all are off. What's wrong? And Joseph's able to interpret these dreams. The point is that this is God's way of bringing Joseph to a place of prominence in Egypt. This is God's way of bringing Joseph from the pit to glory. He wouldn't have met these men if he hadn't been in prison. He wouldn't have met these men if he hadn't been in prison. If he'd been in Potter's house, he wouldn't have met them. And even the amnesia of the cupbearer will find next week it took two years for the cupbearer to remember Joseph. Even the amnesia of the cupbearer for two years is part of God's plan because if Joseph had been let out immediately, if the cupbearer had remembered him, let's say, and said, hey, hey, Pharaoh, thanks for getting me out. By the way, there's this other guy you should get out named Joseph. If he had done that immediately, Pharaoh wouldn't have cared about Joseph because Pharaoh didn't have a dream. Pharaoh wouldn't have needed Joseph. He would have been free but useless. And yet in God's timing, his hand was in every step, every moment. And so you can tell Joseph, God's with you. God's with you. He's guiding you. Isn't that a lesson you need to know? Isn't that the lesson that I need to know? Isn't that the lesson we need? In those times when you think life is purposeless, dark, meaningless, worthless, you need to know that you're in the bubble of God's providence. You're a bubble boy. So if you want an application, there it is. You can tell people at lunch that the application is you're a bubble person. Right? That every dark period in your life, every light period in your life, you are encased in the bubble of God's providence. He intends it for good. Second, first faithful God, second forgetful God. Somebody who didn't remember. God remembered. Somebody who didn't remember. These, these two guys, the cupbearer, the baker, they're terrified by the dreams. They're scared. You can read the dreams beginning in verse 9. The cupbearer sees three branches, three vines. The baker sees three baskets of bread. All kinds of baked goods, we're told in verse 17. Apparently, uh, if you want to know this, there's a little detail for you. In ancient Egypt, I'm told they had 38 different types of cake, 37 different varieties of bread. That's about as much as Publix, maybe. You can go there and count and, and you can see. But they had all kinds of baked goods. They were, they were as yummy, I suppose, as ours today. And uh, so Joseph, here's the dreams. He sees they're sad. He sees they need somebody to care for them. He is sympathetic with them. It's fascinating here that just to think about Joseph in this situation, he could be wrapped up in himself. He could be so focused on the fact that he's in prison and woe is me, I'm innocent, I've been hurt. He doesn't give way to self-pity. He takes an interest in other people. It's a lesson for us. The person who's wrapped up in herself is wrapped up in a tiny bubble, a tiny package. 
Joseph is not resentful. He's interested. He's not just competent. He's not just a good worker. He's not just honest. He's a loving and caring man. And notice what he says, by the way, when these men tell him they have dreams. Look at verse 8. He does not say, oh, good. That's my specialty. That's my spiritual gift. I can interpret dreams. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the dream guy. He doesn't say that. He says instead, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Joseph is convinced that God will help him. In fact, only Joseph and Daniel are the, the two guys in the Old Testament who were given knowledge from God, inspiration to interpret dreams. He is convinced that he can do it, not because he is strong, but because God is strong. God's able to do it. And he is so convinced that he says to the cupbearer, when you are restored, not if. He knows his interpretations are right. And so he tells the cupbearer the good news. Here's interpretation. Three days. Your head's going to be lifted up and the body with it. You're going to be put back in your position. Pharaoh's going to restore you. That's great. Then he gives the bad news. He says the good news, the word of goodness. He gives the word of badness to the baker. Three days also for you. Three baskets. And in three days, verse 19, Pharaoh's going to lift your head up. But no body's going to be attached. He's going to decapitate you. He's going to lift up your head from you. It's a picture here, of course, of what we are to expect from the preaching of the word, the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word is a ministry of good news. It's a ministry of bad news. It's a ministry of good news. It's a ministry of bad news. It's a word that makes alive and a word that makes dead. It's a word of death to those who are perishing, a word of life, Paul says, to those who are being made alive in Christ. That should be what we expect when we read the word of God, that it will do something to us. It will either continually challenge and convict and condemn. If you are arrogant, if you assume, I'm not bad. But when you hear the bad news, you hear the good news, you see that it's a word of life. It's a word of life. It's the only place you can go to find these words of life. And yet for the baker, it, it seems like not, not a very good word. In fact, um, he's not just hung, as the ESV says. He's actually impaled. I don't want to get the details of it. You can think about it yourself. He, he's um, impaled on a pole. Not a nice death, a horrible death. And so the cupbearer is delivered from a horrible death by Joseph. The baker is told the birds would eat flesh off the, off the pole and he wouldn't be buried. Which to an Egyptian, you think about it, for their, their culture at that time, that's a horrible way to go. What do you know about the Egyptians? Burial, really important to them. Mummification, really important to them. Pyramids, tombs, burial is very significant to the Egyptians. And so Joseph tells of a very grisly, horrible fate for the baker. And yet we're told that the chief cupbearer, despite all of that, I mean, you know, you have to realize the cupbearer is given this great news. And what does he do with it? Verse 23, he did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The statement there is deliberately repeating itself. It's deliberate redundancy. He did not remember, but he forgot. What is, why does the Bible repeat itself there? To emphasize. Repetition, emphasize. It's underlined. They didn't have underlining. It underlines the fact that Joseph is in this horrible position where he's not being remembered. How callous the cupbearer was. He forgot Joseph. 
Joseph's work was forgotten. It's a simple fact, friends, that many people forget the good that you do for them. Many folks forget the good that you do for them. That, of course, leads us to the next lesson. If you help people, don't do it for their thanks. You'll be disappointed. You'll be disappointed if you're waiting people to thank you. What a blessing it is for Christians to work for a master who does not forget us. Do you notice that God looks upon everything you do? He knows the littlest thing you do. He sees the cup of cold water that you give in his name to the least of these. And you will not lose your reward. Do you know that you have a God who remembers and who looks and who sees and who knows everything that you do for him? What an encouragement that is. And yet, we can be very quick to criticize the cupbearer. We need to realize just how fickle a saint he is and how fickle a saint we are. Because as much as other people forget what you do, how often we forget what they do. Right? The shoes on the other foot, how often we forget what other people do for us. We're guilty of the same. We're forgetful. We're ungrateful. And we're forgetful and ungrateful with other people, but we're especially, for some reason, we are particularly forgetful and particularly ungrateful when it comes to God, when it comes to what God does for us. It's striking that Jesus Christ knows he knew this. He knew that you would be an amnesiac when it came to his work and who he was. He provides a help for it. He provides a memory aid. He gives it the Last Supper, Luke 22, Verse 19, you know these words. If you've been a Christian, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That word remembrance can cause a lot of issues. I mean, you might think, surely I don't need a remembrance. I don't need a reminder of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I don't even know. I don't even remember what he's done. I don't even recall who he is. How could I need a a reminder? How could I ever forget the Savior who loved me and gave himself for me? Who suffered the wrath of God in my place, who gave me full and free salvation? How could for a single instant any Christian forget Jesus Christ? And we do it. We do it, don't we? The sad truth is that you do it and I do it. We forget him all too easily for large portions of our days. For large moments in our lives, we forget Jesus Christ. Worse than that, it's not just that we have a faulty memory or that we're suffering from spiritual dementia. We deliberately try to forget him, don't we? You deliberately try to not remember Jesus Christ. Deliberately try to forget the Lord and Savior. And worse than that, we don't just deliberately try to forget him. We openly rebel against him. We disobey him. I mean, if only our problem was forgetfulness. If that was the only issue. As Christ says, we're not ten cleansed. We're the nine. We're the other ones. Friends, if you and I have been forgetting Christ this week, what needs to happen? We need to repent. We need to acknowledge that. We need to come to him to pray that it would not be said of us like it is of this cupbearer who receives the gospel. He receives the good news. He receives restoration. And yet he did not remember Joseph but forgot him. And be thankful for the fact that Jesus Christ knows your forgetful, rebellious heart. He knows what you and I tend to do. And he, he provides aids. He 
gives you himself over and over and over and over and over again. Our life is one constant digging up a hell and falling into it and digging up another hell hole and falling into it and Christ restoring us from that hell hole and the next one, the next one. By his wonderful spirit, he brings to memory. Isn't that what the spirit does? Christ promises he will bring to your mind, to your remembrance, all that I have taught you. He'll bring to your remembrance. So we are to live lives that are grateful, recalling his constant grace. And yet we look here and just see, finally, the way in which the Savior forgives. Sometimes the older writers of the Bible, the older interpreters of the Bible are better than the modern scholars. The modern scholars are very good when it comes to an individual word or an individual phrase. They're very good at at analyzing and comparing across cultures. um, That Their Hebrew usually is better than the older interpreters. Not always, but but usually. But the older writers, I think, are really better at, at seeing the whole scope of the Bible. They're better not at, you know, cutting it up into little atoms, but in seeing the the connectedness of Scripture. And when they they look at this text, I think rightly they see that here we have a picture of God's servant in a place of darkness. Here we have a picture of God's servant in a place of punishment. And it's an echo of the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. It's an echo of Jesus Christ. You see, there's a servant of God in this pit, in this prison, in this darkness, in this dungeon. And there are two people with him. There are one, as it were, on either side of Joseph. And one of them is going to die a death. And one of them is going to live a life. He's going to glory. He's going to the right hand of the king. There's a pronouncement of death for the one criminal. There's a pronouncement of life for the other. And in that situation, we have verse 14. In that situation, somebody makes a plea. Somebody asks. Remember me when you come into power. Remember me when all goes well with you. You hear the echo, don't you, in that that question? When all goes well with you, remember me. You hear the echo of Calvary, the echo of the cross of Christ, the word of the thief on the cross. Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. But there's one crucial, humongous difference between this story and the cross. Here, what do we have in Genesis? We have an innocent servant, an innocent man, he asked me to remember by the cupbearer. And the cupbearer has every reason to remember Joseph because Joseph did everything good for him. He gave him the good interpretation, all that Joseph cared for him. But at Calvary, at the cross, at the other way around, the guilty, sinful criminal asked the innocent king of glory, remember me. And the thief has zero reason to assume that Jesus Christ would ever remember him apart from the mercy of the Savior, apart from the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. And what does Christ say? I do remember you. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not two years later. Today, in Genesis, the innocent suffering servant of God says to a mere mortal, a mere man, remember me, and he forgets. And at the cross, the guilty sinner asks the innocent suffering servant of God, the very son of God, when you come into your glory, remember me. And he does remember him. He remembers him. And he remembers us. He remembers us. Above all else from this text, remember and give thanks to the Savior who never forgets his people. Do you know he will never say to any Christian, I forget you. He remembers them. Unlike this cupbearer, Jesus Christ remembers you when he comes into his kingdom. 
It's Isaiah 49. It's the words of the prophet. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Can a mother have no compassion? And Isaiah says, she may forget. It, it, it happens. You know, this has happened in family sometimes where the strong love of a mother for a child, there's neglect. You know, this happens. There's neglect. There's not that compassion that should be there. It's so natural. And yet God says in Isaiah 49, though even a mother may forget her child, I will not forget you. Do you know that God has not forgotten you, though you forget him daily? God remembers you, and he brings you into his glory. That's the beauty, not just of the incarnation, the beauty of the Christian faith. And therefore, what is the purpose? What's the purpose of your life? What's the joy that you are to have? The joy that you are to have is the stunning joy of a gracious God. Despite your spiritual dementia and amnesia, he still does not forget you. So the joy that you're to have is not based upon feeling happy or being good that week. The joy that you're to have is based upon the constant, steadfast love of God. Therefore, as you come into the kingdom of God, which you are here in part, you can serve him. Therefore, you can remember him. Therefore, you can love him. And therefore, as you love him and remember him, you are compelled to remember others, as Joseph does with these people. Let's pray. Father, we come once more with hearts that are feeble, with minds that are forgetful. Yet we encounter your word that reminds us of who we are. It stabilizes us. It helps us this week to not forget you. Lord, we pray that you would be the God who reminds us and who works against, combats our temptation, our tendency, our predilection to forget you, rebel against you. We pray you would strengthen us both in our memory and in our love, to serve you for your glory as you serve us for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.